Welcome, everyone. Um, so as is customary, I would like to begin by thanking the Institute of Philosophy for hosting us and the British Society of Aesthetics um, for their generous funding. Now, I would like to say that our illustrious speaker today, David Sosa, needs no introduction. But here I am giving an introduction, so it must not be the case. In all seriousness, for those of you um, who don't know David, he is professor of philosophy at the University of Texas at Austin, and he's published on a wide variety of um, issues in philosophy of mind, philosophy of language, metaphysics, and beyond. Um, and today he'll be speaking to us about the passion of the critique, which I had hoped would be about why you should all really love the works of a particular Prussian author from the late 18th century. Looking at the handout, I think, unfortunately, that is the case. Take it away. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I did want to start just by thanking um, the group here today. It's really been um, fun for me as a visitor to be uh, participate in this um, sometimes literally movable feast. Um, so thanks for uh, letting me uh, participate in this way too today. Um, you'll have to excuse my, as you'll see, I'm kind of uh, a knife on this topic. Um, I have a lot of expertise in aesthetics. Um, but I do have an idea. Uh, it's one that I hope will be of interest to you. It's an idea that, in effect, represents a redeployment of an idea that I support in other parts of philosophy, other areas. It's also not a wholly novel idea, um, but I think it does diverge from uh, any other position uh, on its issues. And I always will try to provide some reasons for why. Um, it is the position it is. It's also, as you see, very much work in progress. It's not a finished paper. It's not polished at all. Um, so that's all by way of preamble. Okay, so the passion of the critique. Um, in a way, the title is misleading intentionally. Um, I think the passion in one important sort of aesthetic response is, well, missing. There can be no passion no inclination in one underappreciated, I think, variety of aesthetic appreciation. That variety of aesthetic appreciation is fundamentally dispassionate. I think that's all in the handout already. Um, okay, so that claim, that claim that there's this variety of aesthetic appreciation that's fundamentally dispassionate, is one element, maybe the main element, in a more complex view about the nature of aesthetic response that I'm going to try to defend today. Just to give some initial bearings, um, in a way, it was partly in order to acquire some bearings that I pursued these. Um, let me say that my approach has some affinity with uh, some of that Prussian philosopher's views. Uh, the relevant variety of appreciation is constituted by judgment, where the latter, or judgment, is a broader category of intelligent action in which the mind makes a kind of commitment. So that's one thing to know about the view that I'm going to defend. It's sort of Kantian in that way. Um, the view can be seen as particular, so I'm not going to talk a lot about this, but because it's an issue, I think, in aesthetics, the, the degree to which you um, support this kind of line, I just want to go ahead and take a stand on it. Um, so I am, in a way, particularist in the sense that I think it's best developed by Dancy um, in connection with ethics. Um, he calls it morality. 
so that view then, I think, sustains Mothersill's uh, so-called first thesis. Uh, there are no non-innocuous principles of the form whatever has property phi is pro tanto beautiful. But then I'm also uh, brought broadly in sympathy with some of the position developed by Karen Gorevsky and Eric Marcus in their piece, Aesthetic Rationality, especially, as you'll see, with their commitment to analogy between the domains of aesthetics, epistemology, and ethics, um, though you'll also see that they interpret those analogies quite differently. So perhaps more interesting than those overlaps with uh, Kant and with uh, Mother Sola Dancy and with Gerdes and Marskis, um, perhaps more interesting than those overlaps is the range of positions with which the view here will be at odds. Um, I cannot find plausible positions on which the paradigm aesthetic judgment is in effect a variety of belief seen as having a content like, for example, say, Brancusi's bird in space is beautiful. I will attend to the tendency to adopt such a position, um, but I'm similarly inclined to dismiss views on which aesthetic judgment is a species of ethical or practical judgment. But I actually find the reverse reduction of some interest. We can leave that some judgments that are thought to be ethical or practical are better seen as aesthetic, and that will actually emerge. Okay, well. Kantian sympathies notwithstanding, I don't conceive aesthetic judgment in terms of pleasure. It seems to me unclear how best to interpret Kant on the nature of what he calls disinterested pleasures. But I think that aesthetic judgment is not in the relevant sense, in Kant's sense, subjective. It is no more based on anything with an essential relation to feelings than our other judgments. So, for me, the rejection with Sibley, I guess, I'm told, I read, uh, rejection of the idea that the aesthetic is condition-governed, which I think of as akin to the mother soul fancy idea, um, rejection of that idea does not require commitment to the subjectivity of aesthetic judgment. So I think sometimes commitment to the subjectivity of aesthetic judgment goes hand-in-hand -hand with opposition to a certain kind of generality for aesthetic principles. Um, but not in my case. Um, so it is not because de gustibus non disputem est that there are no substantive principles of beauty. There is thus what may be a terminological question about whether aesthetic judgments are in Kant's sense judgments of taste. For him, to be a judgment of taste is to be subjective. Um, but because it's hard to know what a disinterested pleasure is, um, it's a bit hard to know whether to characterize my view as one on which aesthetic judgments are judgments of taste. But in any case, not if they involve anything through which we do not express our autonomy. It's a perfectly Kantian term. So I think the relation of Kant's third critique to his first has been a disputed focus. But I'd center here the issue of the third critique's relation rather to the groundwork. Can what Kant says there in the groundwork about the preconditions of obligation be made to square with his account of judgments of taste if we think the latter um, are not products of reason in the same way as are moral judgments? And if they are compatible, then why not allow moral judgments to be subjective too? As you see, what I'm worried about is 
if the aesthetic is the domain of normativity, and if for Kant the, pros, you know, the possibility of the domain of normativity depends on the, uh, the independence from inclination in the uh, mental activity that's going to constitute that domain, uh, then how can the characteristic mental activity in aesthetic appreciation be uh, subjective? And if it can be subjective, then why can't the moral be subjective too, in just that same way, and nevertheless be a domain of, of normativity? Why can't the normativity of the ethical be modeled on the, on the normativity of, of the aesthetic? Okay, now while I need to be discussing the nature of aesthetic appreciation, and so characterizing a kind of response to reality, response to aesthetic reality, there are correspondingly some positions in what we might think of as the metaphysics of aesthetics, positions on the nature of aesthetic properties themselves, positions on the nature of, let's say, aesthetic value. And I, I'd be inclined to reject some of these positions, aesthetic hedonism, or aesthetic sentimentalism. Uh, but I won't develop here a metaphysics of aesthetic value. Uh, my project is just focused on the nature of aesthetic response. What is it? What's happening uh, when a subject is responding uh, in that way, which we might think is distinctive of engagement, social engagement with things like beauty, sublimity, when we encounter aesthetic excellence. Okay, if you want a kind of precy of what's to be defended here, it's guided, and this is already been in the way uh, suggested. Um, what's to be defended here is guided by Kant's insistence in the groundwork that if there is to be moral obligation, if there is to be the appropriate variety of must in morality, then that will have to be sourced in principles that abstract from the sorts of inclination with respect to which subjects are, as he puts it, receptive. The position here then redeploys that insight, Kant's insight in the groundwork, gets redeployed now in connection with aesthetics. There is a variety of demand to which we are subject in aesthetics. Beauty or sublimity, or whatever the word is for aesthetic excellence, is an ideal. It governs us in a way. But if in a given domain we are governed, then as Kant noted, the corresponding obligations have to be understood as deriving from reason. Ultimately, I think there is bad judgment about art, and it is like bad judgment in general. It demonstrates a failure to appreciate the reasons favoring one judgment over another, or perhaps over a skeptical stance. So my version of this view rejects what some see as consolator acceptance of the idea that even pleasure can be expressive of the subject's reason. In feeling a pleasure, I think we are not active. We are not making the sort of move that we make only when reason orients itself in one way rather than another, not interacting in that way with reasons with which it is engaged. And if we abstract sufficiently on the notion of a pleasure so that it involves no sentiment but only a cognitive orientation of, say, approval, um, then we may have found a different way to express the same view. Yeah, 
I just think that on that way, if we abstract that way on notional pleasure, um, so it's, uh, I mean, the terminology gets worse in here. I mean, is it really a feeling anymore if it's the product of uh, cognition? Um, and it problematically, I think, allows certain passions, the ones that now constitute aesthetic judgment, to be, as I might put it, dispassionate. So that's why I don't prefer that way of conceptualizing the position. Okay, in order to go beyond situating the position in conceptual space, in order to provide more detailed and specific content, I think it will be useful to ask you to grant a prior view, at least for the sake of argument. I fear you will not, in fact, be especially inclined to grant this other view. I have found it to be unpopular. Let's call this other view the analogy, this prior view. Um, but I'm hoping that uh, eventually you'll come back around to finding it more plausible, in part because the conception of aesthetic appreciation to be offered is an extension of the analogy that I'm going to ask you to accept for the sake of argument. So I'm going to begin by saying, please accept this analogy for the sake of argument. I'll extend that analogy to aesthetic appreciation, and I hope that process will make you come back and say, oh, yeah, maybe there is something to the analogy after all. Maybe this whole picture is actually pretty good. That's the hope. So that's the metaphors. Yeah, so while the for the sake of argument part of my request to you to grant the analogy may initially be crucial, uh, I hope the overall package thereafter brought into focus will be satisfying and attractive. Okay, the view I want you to accept for the sake of argument is that epistemic, or what I will call alethic judgment, alethic for truth. So epistemic or alethic judgment on the one hand, and practical or enthalemic, that's a word that my colleague gave me, um, probably he used Ledic, um, that roughly in the same way there, but anyway, practical judgment. Those kinds of judgment are alike in structure. That's what I'm asking you to grant for the sake of argument. What happens in both is that the mind engages in a certain mode, and the mode does vary, but the mind engages in one or another mode a proposition and makes a judgment. In each case, either the affirmative expression of that mode or the negative, or perhaps the skeptical expression, which is often appreciated as itself a kind of judgment, I think. So when you withhold that with respect to a proposition that you're engaging in a certain mode, then that's a variety of judgment in that mode. In each case, the mind engages something, something that in a simple case is, let's say, shaped like a proposition, f of a or something. And then it makes an intellectual move, either skeptical or audacious, affirming or denying. Forming a belief then and making a practical judgment are analogous. I'll say more. The common structure of these phenomena has a characteristic form. So let's take an example. Take a proposition like Mona smiles. A mind can engage that proposition in the alethic mode. Does Mona smile? Is Mona smiling? In which case the resulting judgment might be the belief that indeed, Mona's smiling. Mona smiles. So you can affirm it. Maybe on the basis of some perceptual evidence. So you make a rational judgment based on some reasons, reasons constituted by a perceptual experience or what's delivered by a perceptual experience. You can debate that, but it doesn't really matter for these purposes. And then your judgment, having no contrary evidence, your rational faculty is moved or moves itself, if that's different, 
in the direction of affirmative judgment on the question, in, in the elethic mode, on the question Mona smiles. That's what I say. But one can also engage that same proposition, the Mona smiles proposition, you can engage that proposition practically. And you can affirm it in another way, or deny it. The practical affirmation will not constitute the belief that Mona is smiling. It will yield a different sort of setting of the will. It will yield a practical commitment, a commitment to Mona smiling. It will be, um, there will be a kind of commitment on the subject's part to that, to Mona's smile. That commitment is interestingly different from the kind of commitment that's constitutive of a belief. In particular, for example, should Mona not smile, should Mona not be smiling, the commitment you undertake in belief is thereby, as I want to put it, erroneous or incorrect. But on this other variety of commitment, this practical commitment, should Mona frown instead of smile, you haven't therefore yet necessarily made a mistake. The truth of Mona's smiling is sufficient for it interacts in a certain way, characteristic way, with the kinds of commitments undertaken in elethic judgment, but it does not interact in that same way with the commitments undertaken in practical judgment. Notice that these, this is all still, I'm going to be asking you to accept for the sake of argument, we'll get to the extension in a minute, but notice that these different sorts of judgment with respect to the same proposition can, and very often will, have what we call different valences. So concerning the question of modus smiling, one might deny it, disbelieving, but affirm it in the practical mode of engagement, being, as we put it, for it. A familiar vernacular, maybe this will be helpful, I don't know, it's weird, because I, I think it tends to increase understanding in a way, but then I really want to deny it. But anyway, I'll offer to you as a way of understanding the position. A familiar vernacular for what I'm proposing is that you might judge both that she does not smile, but also that she should smile. And that's sort of, people say, oh, I see what you mean. You know, these different practical commitments, there's a question about what is happening, what should happen, what should be happening. Those, that's what represents this nature. I think that's actually very problematic in the scene. Because I think um, the question of whether Mona should smile is normally engaged in the elitic mode. It's something that you can affirm as true or false. Should she smile, yes or no? Um, whereas I actually want you to try to get um, in touch with a certain other phenomenon, which is the practical mode of engagement of the proposition, which is not an elethic mode of proposition, which may not have any shoulds in it. It's just the smiling by Mona. And now, how are you oriented toward that? And there's a question of practical orientation toward that, which is not the elethic mode of orientation. It's not an evaluation of whether it's occurring. It's, it's as if it's it's oriented toward it in a way that's very tempting to describe as one on which you're asking yourself whether it should happen. And it's not that I object to that locution, but I think it uh, can be misleading because one can start to conceive it really as another elitic question. Well, should she? Yes or no? It's not a yes or no question. The question you confront when you engage practically with the Mona Smiles issue. I mean, it, in some sense, it's, I think there's some sense which it is yes or no, but it's not the familiar it is so. Um, it's yes or no in the sense of affirmative or negative. And maybe right, you can ask yourself, Mona smiles, right? 
and you might say, and you might affirm that. Yes, that is right in the practical mode. Okay, so there's two modes of engagement with propositions. These, are the, these propositions are the same. They, they, you don't have to change the proposition out. You engage it in the characteristic mode, and then you might affirm it in that mode, or deny it, or withhold. You might say, I'm not going to move on that. Okay, maybe again it's helpful to contemplate the paradigm of enthalimic engagement, practical engagement. I think the paradigm for us self-centered types is perhaps Mona's own decision-making. When Mona herself is considering whether to smile, when you're considering whether to do something, I think very often it's familiar to, in that condition, engage with reasons for and against the doing of the thing. You can reason practically with considerations of favor or oppose doing something. When Mona reasons about whether to smile, she is doing, she is doing something, I think, with a proposition that is structurally just like what is being done by anyone who is, say, making a prediction. Structure. She's engaged in the enthalemic mode with a proposition like Mona smiles. She's considering whether to smile. She's considering reasons for and against smiling by her. When we consider whether she is smiling in the alethic mode, we are also contending with the proposition Mona smiles. We are also contending with reasons for and against a judgment, a different kind of judgment, but it's a judgment on that question, on the question Mona smiles. So there's a structural analogy, even if there is a different mode of engagement. The thing is, I think that um, the decision by Mona about whether to smile is not importantly different from our enthalemic judgment on the question Mona smiles. So I want to, in a way, efface the specialness of the first-person character of decision-making. It's not that I think it's to be ignored. I think it's an important phenomenon, too. But I think the normative issue is made most salient if you don't, in a way, emphasize the fact that when Mona contends practically with the question Mona smiles, as she can do, um, that normative circumstance her excellence is just like our excellence when we contend with the question Mona smiles practically, as we can do. We can weigh reasons for and against Mona smiles. In doing that, we wouldn't thereby be weighing reasons for and against our own smiling. It's true that when Mona does that, she is doing that too. But that, I claim, is not where the normative status lies. The normative status lies in the in the engagement with the question Mona smiles, the anthelemic practical engagement with that question, which any of us can do. Okay. I'll return soon to the bearing of all this on aesthetics, but I want us to be vigilant against transforming the practical question into one about whether anything someone, myself or anyone else, might do would be good. I've already said this. Whether it would be good if Mona smiled is a question one would normally engage only in the ethic mode, corresponding sort of definition of denial. One could then use testimony or other bits of evidence that bear on that question in a familiar way. That Smith believes it would be good if Mona smiles, smiles, might serve as the basis for your belief that it would be good. But only if there were some special circumstances in place could the fact that Smith so believes play a corresponding role in connection with your unbelieving judgment, as I can see it.
question or smile. This is meant to engage an issue in ethics about um, the role of moral testimony in the rationality of, um, of moral judgment. I'm thinking that this distinction I'm making will help with that, and so I'm just, I'm just sort of running that out there for you. Okay, I know you're wanting some more aesthetics, so let me get to it. So um, let me skip that paragraph. Okay, so all that's all very controversial, but um, I propose it to you all as something you, you might uh, grant for the sake of argument. Okay, fine, fine. There's a structural analogy when we, when we engage questions practically, we do so in a way that structural analogous the way we engage questions when we're forming a belief, and it's the same proposition, but taking two different modes and so on. Okay, fine, I grant you all that, and you may engage with reasons for and against the judgment of the corresponding sort of fine. Now, if you grant me all that, I want to make an additional move, and this is on the handout, I think extending the analogy that there is an aesthetic mode of thought and reasoning too, and it too has the same structure. So really I wanted to take all that that I have to grant for the sake of argument and just say aesthetics has a version of that. One can engage the issue of Mona's facial expression in an aesthetic mode, and then affirm it, or deny it, or doubt it. In that way, in that distinctively aesthetic way, the whole structure of reasoning, given that that structure is as I described it, will now reapply. The mind can engage considerations, aesthetic reasons, that say support an affirmative aesthetic judgment with respect to her smile. Yes, one might judge aesthetically. Not yes, she is smiling. Not yes, in the way that's characteristic expression of being for her smiling. But yes, in an aesthetic mood, one which ex expresses a, let's call it, positive expression of a critique, positive appreciation of that feature of the artwork. My hope is that the general shape of the proposal is thereby quickly put in relief for you. One important sort of aesthetic response, aesthetic appreciation, or perhaps what's best termed critique, involves engaging a proposition to the effect that something is some way. And in the light of reasons favoring one or another judgment, making it, making that judgment. That sort of judgment is an act, it's an expression of spontaneity, of autonomy and freedom, and it stands to belief formation in something like the way the setting of the practical will stands to belief formation. It's structurally analogous while intrinsically different in conscious character. The tendency to view aesthetic judgment as a variety of belief, which I earlier um, dismissed as inadequate, belief in which the concept of beauty or sublimity or what have you is deployed, is I think the product of the sort of confusion, the same sort of confusion that sees practical judgment as consisting of claiming to the effect that one or another action is good or is to be done. So I think practical judgment is not like that. Those are leakage judgments. The claim that that action is good is a claim to truth, something one might believe. Similarly, I think the idea that something, you know, the Mona Lisa is beautiful, um, that is not expressive of an aesthetic judgment. That's expressive of a leakage judgment. That's the expression of a belief. So I do agree that things like, you know, Brancusi's bird in space is beautiful. We, we can call that an aesthetic judgment if you want. It certainly has kind of aesthetic content. But I'm insisting that there's a variety, a different variety of aesthetic judgment, a very important variety of aesthetic judgment, which is not like that at all, um, which is uh, 
the expression of a distinctively aesthetic mode of engagement, not with propositions of the form, Francuzzi's bird in space is beautiful, but rather with contents like Francuzzi's bird in space has that particular curve there, or Mona smiles, or what have you. Some feature of the work of art is one to which you're responding, the having of which by the work of art, one to which you're responding in a characteristically aesthetic mode, and finding yourself driven by various reasons to affirm make a judgment to the form. Well, critique involves, uh, sorry, I can't take it back. Um, critique involves active, I claim, approval or disapproval. One can also actively refrain, one can doubt aesthetically. I think some critics have good judgment, good taste, I would have said, if the word weren't problematically co-opted to denote sentimental reactions. Good critics understand aesthetic excellence, whatever that is, whatever aesthetic excellence is. Their aesthetic judgment moves with good reason. When they affirm in the aesthetic mood something like, this scent opens with black currants, they may just then be sensitive to the way that tart opening element, when it gives way to the mossy bass notes, creates a distinctively pleasurable olfactory experience. The aesthetic affirmation they deliver in engagement with that proposition, the proposition, this scent opens with black currants, the affirmation they deliver in giving with that proposition can be seen as a rational response to their awareness of the sensory experience produced. Now, I realize that I just said to the sensory experience, we were saying, wait, I thought we were supposed to think that like sensory experience didn't have anything to do with all this. I'm going to clarify exactly how what I just said is consistent with what I said before in a minute. Um, so it's not that there is no role for the sensory in aesthetics. It's that the uh, ground of the kind of judgment I'm talking about, what are really, I say, the nature of the kind of judgment I'm talking about, which I'm claiming is constitutive of a distinctive variety of aesthetic response, one that makes the subjects who deliver those responses, who give those responses, evaluable in a certain way, members of the domain of normative evaluation, that's not pleasure. But <laughs> the judgments in question can be, can, can attend to the distribution of pleasure. So I'm going to get to that in a second. Anyway, another, another way, another thing a subject could do in the, um, in the relevant uh, space, uh, they may be sensitive instead, instead of to the uh, sensory character of the tart opening notes of the scent, they may rather be sensitive to the way the aromatic composition reconstitutes, maybe by analogy in a particular sensory mode, a specific geographic structure. You're in a peat bog in Scotland, say, uh, when you confront this scent. Um, so these sensitivities can give the critic one or another aesthetic reason to affirm propositions like this scent opens with black currants or this scent reconstitutes the olfactory experience of a Scottish bog. Um, when the critic now affirms one or another of those propositions, they might be doing so in the light of reasons. And that might then be expressive of their good taste, or bad taste, as the case may be. OK, I'm hoping you're beginning to get the feel of the view. But I think the most efficient way to develop it in a bit more substance will be to consider some of the issues and questions it raises. OK, first of all, how general do I, how much generality do I claim for this picture? Is this sort of aesthetic judgment the only sort of aesthetic response there is? No, definitely not. There are many sorts of aesthetic response. 
I'm really defending anything existential claim. I'm wanting to make sure this gets a good airing too. Again, the analogy with the Aletheic and Epilemic cases are instructive. There are, of course, other sorts of epistemic and practical responses too. Maybe there is something, I hope, there's something especially fundamental about the sort of response I'm trying to uh, develop, indeed in all three areas. But I'm not defending that here. Look, if one witnesses some ethical outrage, I think um, it is constitutive of your excellence as a thinker that you should be practically set against what is being done. But there is also the question of whether you can't help but be somehow excited by the proceedings. If so, that's grotesque. Something is wrong with you. I just think what's wrong with you then is of a very different sort from what would be wrong with you if you approved of the moral outrage. Similarly, I claim, with taking more delight in Kincaid than in Kandinsky. That delight is a kind of disaster, but you cannot be obligated not to undergo it. Okay, so that's just one point I want to bring out. Another one. I think of this as the Alex Krizantowski point. The sort of thinking emphasized here is always with respect to a proposition. But we respond aesthetically to objects, to paintings, to performances, to perfume. Indeed, just as you can believe Smith, Smith can be, in some sense, the object of a belief, in some sense, an object. And after all, Smith's so reliable. So you can respond affirmatively, aesthetically, to less than yes, say, if you're into it. That sort of, let's call it, objectual response is in both cases different from the phenomenon I'm trying to bring to you. When you respond affirmatively, aesthetically, to, say, the presence of the figure in the painting located in the open doorway to the right, yes, one might think. Um, now, you might ask, someone might ask you, why are you having that response to the painting? And the answer might be, because of how that figure makes sense of the light coming in from that side of the painting, or highlights the way of being in the world of the aristocratic subjects. Um, there might be many answers to the question about why you're having that affirmative response um, to the presence of the figure located in the open doorway in Lesson In any case, so long as any objectual aesthetic response is with respect to an aspect of the aesthetic object, and I'm not here asserting it is, um, but if it should be, then there's the prospect of making sense of any objectual response in the propositional terms I favor. So what will be under consideration then is the having of that aspect by the object. But even should that sort of general reduction, let's say, of objectual aesthetic response not ultimately be plausible, I think we should anyway acknowledge the independent significance of the sort of critique um, that I'm describing here. Okay, third point. Does the position I'm proposing entail that one can be aesthetically irrational? Yes, that's a key part of the, prop of the position. If you make a negative judgment in the face of Mona Lisa smiles just so, you have to do for understanding further, you make that judgment. I think there's something incomprehensible, maybe absurd, something irrational about you. It's as if your mind were moved to affirm, I shoot by the prospect of some pain to be caused. Or moved to affirm P by the conjunction of Q and if P then Q. Okay, we can say more, but let me keep pushing ahead. So where are delight and disgust in all this? Answer, in the same place as in connection with practical judgment. In the first instance, nowhere. The passion of the critique is missing. 
There's a kind of freedom of the will that grounds a variety of objective aesthetic demand on us. We're too passive in our disgust and delight reactions for them to serve in any significant role in making sense of the aesthetic response I'm describing. Though one may find oneself attracted to an unethical action or to an ugly condition, one had nevertheless better set one's corresponding judgment against it, however effective. Again, if you can't help but find those kitschy Kincaid paintings at the mall delightful, that means you're sort of broken aesthetically. But so long as the vulgarity of the compositions moves you to a negative aesthetic judgment, you're basically reasonable. You make sense aesthetically. Ironically, and this is a slight development of things I've said before, I do think the condition of a person's taking delight in the bad or in the ugly is itself an ugly condition. Though I've already said, I don't think it's an, a condition that one can set oneself against practically. I think setting one's practical will against, it, against that sort of receptivity is like setting one's practical will against a flower's wilting. It's confused. One should not set oneself practically against a person's taking delight in something unethical. But I think one can set oneself against the aesthetics of that. That's ugly. Taking delight in bad conditions is disgusting. There's something untoward about that delight, and for that matter, about the flowers or human beings' sad decline. And there's a kind of aesthetic excellence in the natural opposition we feel to the pain of another. The feeling of opposition we have to the pain of another when we have it, I think is, there's a kind of beauty there. There's beauty in the appearance of a healthy rose in bloom. Of course, it's all very complex because there's also a certain sublimity in nature's redness and tooth and claw, so it's not simple. But I, I wanted to just point out that there's a possibility of position on which, this, and I mentioned this earlier, by the way, in which there, we have the reverse reduction. Some things which people think of as a kind of um, moral judgment, I think of as really best understood as a kind of aesthetic judgment. The aesthetic judgment is uh, a kind of opposition to a circumstance, the circumstance of someone's taking delight, taking pleasure in some morally reprehensible uh, circumstance. Uh, I think that's a much more attractive uh, picture than the idea that we should find that delight by that person in that unethical circumstance a morally reprehensible condition, thus and let's respond to it with a negative moral, um, uh, negative enthalemic judgment. Okay. Um, and I, I mentioned this briefly, but I'll just say a little bit more about it, and I'll stop seeing that. Note that while pleasure is not, for me, the mode in which aesthetic appreciation is expressed, and I think it is for, for many who identify as Kantians, I do think a feeling of pleasure, one's own or that of another, can serve as a reason, though importantly, normally only an undistinguished one among many, for the determination of an, of an aesthetic judgment. So just as one might set oneself against a course of action because that course of action would lead to a great deal of pain, so you, you contemplate a course of action, um, and now you're engaged in a practical judgment, moral judgment, you're deciding so to speak, what to do, and you contemplate that the doing of that will lead to a great deal of pain, that can, that can serve as a reason for your rational judgment against so proceeding. So although it's a judgment, you know, a denial that you'll proceed that way, 
that's constituting your position in the normative domain in question, still that judgment is sensitive to there being a lot of pain in prospect. Similarly, I claim aesthetic judgments can be guided by the prospect of a lot of pleasure or pain. So it might well be in the light of the amount of pleasure that that aesthetic condition produces, that may be your reason for judging affirmatively on the excellence of that. That's the uh, subtle, I think, um, position one has to try to understand, because only then, I think, have we put the delight caused by artwork in its proper place. It, in a way, um, it's not that they are the metaphysical ground of the excellence of the artwork, but they can serve as reasons for a judgment um, that's rational to the effect that that artwork is excellent. Okay, just as our moral reactions are not simply grunted sentiments, but instead products of cognition, and pleasure and pain are not the ultimate ground of moral status, similarly with aesthetics, we judge aesthetically, and no kind of pleasure or pain is at the foundation of aesthetic appreciation, but also, just as one would be irrational not to take the pain of another as a reason against setting one's practical will in one or another direction, so one can take the lack of emotional resonance of a painting or a score as a reason against one or another set of judgment. Okay, then I've got a section on how um, this phenomenon of critique is related to that of interpretation, as in the sense of by Carol, I think I'll skip that. And one day I will discuss it maybe with uh, Professor Carroll, but not here. Um, okay, earlier I expressed dissatisfaction with positions on which aesthetic judgment is a variety of beliefs. Similarly, I expressed skepticism about positions on which critique is a sort of practical judgment. To some extent, uh, those positions seem to be the product of an absence of imagination. But given, what we already given that we already distinguish belief formation from the undertaking of practical commitments, not everyone does, but anyway, assuming we are going to grant me for the sake of argument, um, that those are to be seen as structurally analogous and yet to differ in virtue of the character of the mode of, mode of engagement involved in, those, uh, in, the, in the undertaking of those commitments, we now have a model for how to go forward into the domain of aesthetics. Relying on that model, we can see how the nexus of philosophical issues involved in a subject's susceptibility to what are sometimes called the wrong sort of reasons will recur. So I want to basically reconstitute that philosophical issue in the domain of aesthetics as well. So when one is making a leap of judgment, when one is judging whether something is the case, right? you are to be immune in that sort of judgment to things like wishful thinking. So when you contend with the question of whether, say, P, right, whether it's the case that P, one had better not be moved to judge aletically firmly, whether to, to go in for a belief that P, by one's practical commitment toward that. That's just wishful thinking, right? If you, if you say want very much that can be the case, you know, you're very much committed, you're for it, you, yeah, uh, you so to speak want that to happen, you think it would be good if it would happen to use the vernacular, misleading though it is. Um, if that commitment on your part to it is what moves you to judge that it is the case, that's a variety of rational, familiar variety of rational called wishful thinking. Um, similarly, uh, one's knowledge that P is not the case, or was not the case, or will not be the case, cannot serve, I claim, as a reason for setting oneself against it, practically, or in favor of it. 
there's no, unfortunately, unfortunately, adequate connection between what is and, so to speak, what should be. And now I think we can go on, given this, the analogies I'm trying to develop. Um, whether or not Gauguin's subjects are rendered in earthy tones, familiar with the Tahitian environment, and also whether or not his subjects should be so rendered, so to speak, strictly it's whether or not one conceives they're being so rendered in the way that's characteristic of the conditions serving for you as a practical reason in favor. It's an outflow. Um, anyway, whether those subjects are rendered that way, whether, as we put it, they should be rendered that way, neither of those can be a basis for judgment as to the aesthetic status of Gauguin's art. It is only through appreciation in the relevant mode of the excellence or demerit of the work's features that one might be led rationally to make an affirmative or negative aesthetic judgment. That observation should be understood in the spirit, that's what I just made, should be understood in the spirit of the claim that it is only what counts for one as evidence that can serve as a rational ground for the formation of belief. Because aesthetic appreciation is a reason-governed activity, it too faces a wrong kind of reasons issue. One cannot rationally take considerations engaged in the alethic or anthelenic mode to favor or oppose an aesthetic judgment. Okay, that's what I wanted to try to put before you, so I'm open to um, suggestion. Thank you.